I'm Shreen Patek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's newest podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their stories, how they became the leaders they are today, and what their special power is that makes their craft so remarkable. I actually think my greatest fear is inertia. I, I fear that our organization may sit still and and agencies can't. So I'm I think I probably over rotate on the opposite. What's the opposite of inertia? Because by the way, also competitively, I mean let's just step back competitively. If we're always moving, then our competitors can't figure out where we are. That's Wendy Clark, CEO at DDB North America. I've come to know Wendy quite a bit over several years, from when she was at Coke to her time agency side at DDB. To me, it was interesting to see how she focuses on movement and progress at work. And that's important because in an industry where quick changes in the marketplace are so common, quick decisions are often not. And she makes sure that her team moves quickly because that's how you have to remain competitive. Several times on interviews, I steal Steve Easterbrook saying, who's the CEO of McDonald's, he says progress over perfection, right? And I think progress over perfection is a good metaphor for what we have to do to move with a real-time marketplace, right? I mean, the marketplace is moving faster than ever. So if we're busy looking for perfection in a marketplace that is rating contextual relevance in real time, we are completely at odds with the marketplace. We have to move into a place that where speed trumps perfection and that we'll, and by definition of that, we're making progress. And I think it's, it's putting those, that sort of principle in place. And so back to a leadership perspective, you have to be able to make decisions and you have to be able to make them very quickly. And I'm, I, I think that is a doer mentality from doing you grow into understanding when decisions aren't made, how it chokenecks and strangleholds an organization is not good. It's not effective. It's certainly not in this marketplace today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I very much think about that notion of, you know, being able to make, I, I try very aggressively to make decisions with the speed that my organization needs them to be made. I'm less worried about whether they're the right decision or not, to be quite honest. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that most of the time they are. But if it's not the right decision, we've made a decision, it's the wrong decision, we'll pivot quickly and we'll get to the right one. It's way better than no decision. Try a lot of things. Yeah. Just yeah. try things. How yeah. do you guard against inertia? I think it, some people call it inertia, it's the euphemism, laziness. Um, for yourself, but also just overall, you're looking at a global network of many, many people and personalities mm-hmm. of many different projects. Do you worry about sort of things slowing down certain parts? Do you worry about missing that? Because you were... You can't see everything. I think you set the tone, though. I think leaders set the tone on that. And so if I, if that's why I'm so focused on always moving forward with decisions, regardless of how absolutely perfect they are, but it's progress. And every time you make a decision, it's progress. It's new news. It's a pivot. It sends people into motion and action. I, I don't want to be that static, you know, you know, sort of we've got the flag in the ground. This is what we stand for. These are, we obviously have immovable aspects of our, value system and culture but everything else is negotiable give me an example of a quick decision you had to make recently oh quick decisions on hiring certainly on talent constantly moving people uh quick decisions on pitching to pitch not pitch uh can we do that uh quick decisions on uh what else uh well work constantly um you know are we moving forward with that? Are we not moving forward with that? Are we making that recommendation? Are we not? I mean, it, 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 it's all day long every day. I don't even think that you know potentially sometimes when you are. I think part of it is making sure 
that not too much of it comes to me. So I do try to really empower people. It should only come to me after, you know, there's an inability for something that can't be made other than me getting involved. So I'm not, I'm not precious about making them, but I want the organization to constantly move, constantly move. Um, You mentioned hiring. Mm. What's, what's the hardest part of hiring and also sometimes firing? The hardest part of hiring, I think, is, well, I guess what I would say what I look for in hiring is, uh, or is the energy someone has. Uh, Ari and I now have kind of a shorthand that we we call um, uh, the DNA. Like, we know immediately our shorthand with each other is like, you met them, do they have the DNA? And so this is like our question to each other. We, we're kind of clear on the DNA that we're looking for in the agency now. Um, and so that I hire against that. And that's, that's a whole lot of intangibles and aspects, but it's pretty much an energy and a focus and a drive uh, coupled with smarts. So, uh, smarts is entry. And I don't mean to dismiss them, but we're not going to have a conversation with someone that we don't think is capable of doing the job. Sure. So capability gets you in the door the dna gets you hired and and we i want someone quite honestly i mean generally when i hire people i try to hire people who are infinitely better than i am because i want to be pushed i if i'm the uh, that that would go into my fear of inertia if no one's pushing me i fear that i'll be inert but when i've got these really bright you know capable and uh passionate energetic high energy people around me that there's no room for me to go inert because right? they're like what the hell we're all doing this what are you doing right so I, I, I deliberately surround myself with people like that because that's how we make progress mm-hmm. so like, we I, if we're going to teach you what you need to know I mean we have we have the DDB way of doing that yeah, we, no matter how you come to us we're going to sort of go well here's how we get to the strategic kernel of what's interesting and here's how we do this we have all that locked and if you're a smart capable person you're going to be able to learn how to do that it's really about what you come packaged in that sort of you know your core essence and what you're about and what you bring to it and the fact that you you know i hire people who come across the table at me and give me this job i won't let you down and that's why it's what i most want to hear from someone is like you got the job it's fine because everything else we can teach I hire attitude all day long. What about saying goodbye to people? Um, you know, I've, you know, over my 20-something years, I've fired a lot of people. Um, and I think you have to be as good at that as you are at hiring and be able to tell someone when it's not working out. The best thing to do is, as it is in life, any sort of breakup is to be transparent and open and caring and empathetic. And, and I think... In, in the times when I can reflect on, there are maybe a few faces running through my mind now of, of people. It's what you find, and you know, some of the most high profile and dramatic you know, exits, you find that that person is equally as unhappy as the organization is to have them, always. It's ne- there's no, never it's very a case. just one way. Kind of, I thought things were great. No, it's not that. And even if that's their surface emotion, that is not their deep emotion. They are equally as unhappy as the organization is with them. And so you're, in some sense, in most senses, again, the people that are running through my mind right now, I feel like it's actually been an unleashing moment. It's like, you know what? You've set me free. You set me on a course. And of course, we do it with dignity and, and care and handling. But you've now allowed me to go pursue the next thing because I probably wasn't going to push myself there as long as you guys were going to keep me here. 
And there are stories, I mean, I can re- reflect on a, a couple people at GSDNM when I was there who've gone up and had incredible second careers that had nothing to do with advertising, by the way. So it was almost like they needed that sort of permission to go explore exactly what their passion was and what they wanted to do. So um, I think it's, you know, we do have sort of that principle of to be a dynamic and successful organization, by definition, we're always going to have to keep a very fluid view on the capability and the talent we have in our organization. And I think so the agency business by its nature has to does. be that way. It, does. it has to be okay with that. And you just find that people find their next great thing. Have you ever considered quitting advertising? No, never. Never thought about it. Never mm. thought about a second act. Going to go off no. and be a novelist. No. Well, I was a writing major. I mean, right, I, that's why I picked that one. I've always sort of toyed in my mind. But there's, not a, there's not a book pent up in my head at the moment, at least. <laughs> Somewhere in your life. I mean, there's, you know, at some point, I, you know. What would it be about, even if you had to write one? I always thought, like, you know, just got to write, like, a chick lit book. Something completely different. You from, do want to write. I mean, you know, the going joke is, well, that's going in the book. You know, when you have those experiences. I mean, uh, there are so many career experiences that I've had that I just think, you know. They should be documented. I mean, just even the, the relaunch and rebranding on AT&T, unbelievable experience. I mean, it, it, it was a gift on so many, but it was complex and it was difficult. And it was, there were, there were you know, boardroom moments that I recall. There were, I mean, there's so many moments that kind of flashed through my mind showing Ed Whitaker the, the launch campaign of his $1.2 billion campaign in Austin, Texas at GSDNM, like sitting in the room and, you know, him literally saying, you need to spend more on this? What, what client says you need to spend more on this? I mean, they're like those moments kind of pop through my mind when you say capturing things. If you were to write a book about your life, though, just your, just your life, what would you call it? <laughs> well, the thing I do say, it, my word, I always used to say my word was improbable. Right, because... It, a, it's it, hard to pronounce. It's hard to pronounce. Not many people say <laughs> it five times. Um, but yeah, I mean, a British father, an American mother who was raised in Venezuela, the mere fact that my DNA got together, that that, that woman and that man had a baby is in 1971 is unbelievable. It, it, back then when people didn't get on planes, I mean, the fact that they met from a very basis and that they held it together long enough to have a baby and then didn't, you know? <laughs> so it starts with that sort of note and then goes all the way through. I mean, I just, I think that, you know, the, the kid of a single mother, you know, transatlantic move, five schools in five years. I mean, I can go on and on with the improbability that I was not supposed to live this life. I every now and then think this was, I was not ever supposed to have this. At the same time, I feel, I, I sort of made a pivot a few years ago and I'm like, you know, that, that, is not helpful for the next young person that goes, well, it's, it's, a, it's a game of luck, kids. I was improbable. So I actually kind of pivoted. I did a speech at um, the Matrix Awards when I, when I got that um, and said, it's no longer, as of this day, it's no longer improbable. It's two words. It's I'm probable. And I've tried to live to that mantra of actually owning this rather than sort of deflecting it and saying it's lucky and it was improbable and saying, you know what? I worked hard. I'm very committed to this. I try to give back. I try to bring others with me. I try to do all the right things. And therefore, in some sense, that makes me probable. 
I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After the break, Wendy will talk about what she has in mind for her second act. Stay tuned. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. Join our community to get a firsthand look at how digital is transforming the worlds of business. You'll get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invites to member-only events. And it's only $395 a year. Please sign up at digitayplus.com. And for you, our podcast listener, we have a discount offer to get Get 10% off your subscription. Enter the code podcast at checkout. Now back to the episode. Uh, so I was born and raised in England. Uh, my father's British. My mom's American. And uh, I lived there till I was about 11. Uh, we moved to Florida at that time. Um, and, and my parents were separated when I was three. So I don't remember living under the same roof as both parents. Uh, largely raised by my mother. Uh, she was the American. She brought us back mm-hmm. here. And... Um, you know, I think the thing that I reflect on now that I have my own children, I, I, it's funny because I don't think you think about the, the scars and the wounds of your childhood uh, until your kids come home and they've been bullied or, you know, they've got some sort of drama with their friends and you reflect on your own drama at that age, you know, so I think about, oh, well, when I was in seventh grade, honey. Um, and I had this sort of moment uh, a couple of years ago where I realized hadn't ever reflected on it before. I mean, legitimately in my 40s, realized that I had gone to... Uh, five different schools in five years. Uh, so from the school in England and then in sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I went to different schools here. So five schools in five years. And uh, I was like, wow, that really happened. Uh, what I draw from that is, you know, I know how to enter a room and not know anyone. And, you know, you get skills. I mean, you have survival skills at that point when you like get literally go, you lift up every year and have to start again during your early teens, That's which are really so hard insecure for anyway. A teen. So, you know, it's funny because I tell people I was quite shy and no one believes that, but I was. And I think it was because of that. I, you just develop survival skills and I knew how to survive. I knew how to, you, in the end, you don't want to be noticed because you don't, otherwise you have to reestablish and that kind of thing. Um, and plus I was going through this cultural change too. So I was very British. I was plummy. I, you know, I mean, I, was, I know it's hard. All these things you look at me like, what? Shy and plummy. Okay. Not, not associated with Wendy Clark. Um, tell me a little bit about, about your mom and your family. Kind of you were, you know, well, here you are trying to be Americanized and, I was. You know, and you're in Florida. Most American of American places. Right. Sarasota, Florida. Beautiful. Sarasota, uh, absolutely beautiful, which, uh, embedded my love of being near the water and the ocean and the sand. I mean, there's nowhere that I'm happier than on the beach uh, based on that. My mom is my person. I I, I talk about her very genuinely. I'm an only child and she has raised me and single-handedly, I would say, had an ambition for me that I couldn't possibly understand when I was three, four, five, 10, 11, 12. I now at 46 understand what that has, what that meant and what it has ultimately come manifested into was my mother's ambition and drive for me. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like a helicopter mom, you know, craziness. It was just a, I always knew people would say, how early did you know what you want to do? I just knew that I was going to work. I mean, it was always very clear. You're going to go to college. You were going to have a job. You're going to have a career and other things will happen. I, I couldn't have told you what it was, but that was just always part of our dinner conversation was on the, on the journey to college, you know, in high school it was getting to college mm-hmm. In college. It was getting into the workplace in the workplace. It was making good decisions and building a career. That's, she's been unequivocal about that, that that was just the natural that course. Was what was I, gonna happen. For me, it was just like, well, this obviously is going on at everyone's dinner right. table. Tell me a little bit about sort of the college path. 
for you? Well, College Path was, I knew I was going, uh, again, raised by a single mom. So my options from a financial perspective and with my 3.3 three GPA were... <laughs> <laughs> we'll say that part quietly. Were, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a, t- a, a crush of financial aid and scholarships coming away. Actually, we did get financial aid, but scholarships. So I needed to go in-state. So I went to Florida State, uh, which was, it is a great school. Um, I'm very proud. I, I, I got to actually give the commencement speech last year, which was just thrilling. Just uh, if you have an opportunity to do that, do it. It was, um, it was the, it was a, it was a definitely a life oh, I highlight. Hope, I hope the dean of journalism school at Columbia is listening. Do it one day. You'll get asked one day. I think a lot of times people get it. I had been asked previously, and I said no because it's well, it, you know, it's just the commitment and the time frame and and the and the magnitude of writing something that you think is that, and you're like ah, you know, the timing hadn't worked out before. But I'm very glad I did it and. The only crushing thing about that was as I stood up there talking to 10,000 people, I realized that the co-eds sitting in front of me who were whatever, 2,500, you know, plus their family, um, none of them were actually born when I was in college. And it was the most crushing moment as I thought about it. I was like, you people weren't even alive when I was here. I just felt so old in that moment. But You should have brought up something really ridiculous like, oh, what does a cassette tape and a pencil have to do with each other well which only like some people would know you know I you just, put the pencil the yeah tape. I mean well as I was because I was sort of kicked out you know when I lived in Divinity Hall and I did this and I did that and I'm thinking that, that dorm isn't even standing <laughs> anymore and that's when it all came crashing down but I tell you the the coolest thing about it was it was such an amazing sitting on the dais and watching all these people one by one get receive their diploma and seeing just their jubilance, hearing their family's joy, and the, you know, you, you, it's just such a swelling feel of humanity. Like, look at all these young, bright, intelligent, incredible people going forth into the world, and they're going to make the world better. And I, it, I just, you know, because you physically sit there for two or three hours yes, as everyone goes by. And, but it was thrilling. It was cool. I loved it. And then, you know, a couple of the young co-eds who were in my sorority came up and gave, slipped me the shake on the dais and stuff like that. So it was fun. So we that's still relevant. Yeah, yeah. There you oh, go. Yeah, yeah. What, um, what was college life like? Were you, where you became a, was that when you kind of figured out, okay, maybe advertising, this is kind of interesting, or were you thinking something completely uh, different? I was a writing major. I was a creative writing major. So I thought I wanted to write ads. Um, and I can hear Ari Weiss laughing as I say that. Um, so that was my that was my my goal was to to be a writer. Um, I I loved college. I, I think it's where I got finally kind of got my footing a lot, um, and just made my lifelong friends. So all my lifelong friends are from college. I have very few that I'm in touch with still. I mean, peripheral friends from high school, but my lifelong the people in my wedding those all came from college. So I met my husband in college too. So. Um, it was great. It, I think it's a, it, it's one of the best gifts I had in my life was leaving home and, you know, figuring it out and studying. Was and it hard? You're an only child. Um, I'm an only child leaving, mm-hmm. you know, leaving your mom and being away from home. Did you feel a sense of, no, I was super independent. Still am. Um, so I, I, it, I just, it, I had been raised, you know, with the expectation that I would do this. And so I did. Um, I worked throughout college. I mean, again, working has been a backbone of my life, too. So all through high school, I had to work. We, what was your first ever job? My first ever job was McDonald's. Was I McDonald's, heard, heard, right. We, we've heard we that know a this. lot. We know this one. It's a, it's, but, but even before we had the McDonald's business, I said, I used to talk about this a lot because 
McDonald's as formative training was incredible. Incredible. I, I, I can't say enough about what it did for me at, you know, age 15, 16. I worked there for a year and a half. Um, I ultimately was a shift manager. So at 16 years old, running a shift of a restaurant, just think about what's involved in that. You have customer satisfaction. I had to figure out, you know, supply and demand on how much food, you know, we would make. Cause that was back in the day when it wasn't made to order. You had the bins, if you remember, with the food in. Um, yeah, I had to do, deal with employee insubordination. I had to ha- do cash management. I had to cash people in and out. I did bank deposits. I mean, think about what is involved in running a shift of a restaurant. And a 16-year-old has that empowerment and opportunity. It was, it was such an immersive of like, this is what business is. I mean, at 16 years old, obviously my sights were slightly different, but I was like, I like business. Like, I like working. This is and I think you like got to sort of understand the levers, yeah, the leadership, the levers and of of business and making a shift work. Yeah, I I totally liked it. It was fantastic for me. What was hard about it? Uh, hard about it was um, what was the hardest part? I think the hardest part was that, for the most part, when you're right, when I was running those shit, those were my peers. They were my friends from my class, and then in McDonald's, I was their boss. So that was probably difficult. Right. I had been the, I sort of raised up faster and for my age. And so, you know, I was both friends with them. So when they turned up late for their shift or if they didn't show up or if they took too long of a break, you know, and had to go back and say, I need you back on the floor. Like, okay, that's kind of bitchy of you. Right. But when you're friends, so that, I think it was difficult for me to manage being friends and boss. At 16, I didn't have necessarily the That's hard. Skills. That's always hard, right? It's hard. It's hard. It's hard today, but I'm way more skilled at it today <laughs> than I was at 16. Something about a service environment kind of teaches a lot of things to people. It does. It's like the humility, the... Yeah. I mean, the one of the hardest jobs, I think, in modern life is probably working in a customer-oriented service Absolutely. business. Absolutely. And, and you know, we're in a service business now. So it, I think it's great, it's great early training from that perspective and... And I, even today, when we're talking to McDonald's about, you know, whatever, they're going to launch a new sandwich or this or that, my mind automatically goes to what about the crew members? Because I've been that crew member who had to receive the new menu item or the new merchandising materials to put up inside the restaurant, et cetera. And like, I've, I have empathy for that person because I've been that person. And I think that is the gift is being able to remember what it's like to be like, have we made it as turnkey and as easy as it could be? Is there anything we haven't thought about? And obviously they've got hundreds of people at McDonald's who do that for a living. But I think even for us to think through as their agency, are we making crew members' lives easier or harder in our communication? Is there, how can that always be a consideration is, is what crosses my mind when I look at things. How do you think of that internally at DDB? I mean, you want to think about it, you know, right down to, the interns for the summer, right down to everybody else in the office? Well, on a parallel, so my first job after college, I was a receptionist in that agency. So I, I, I've been that person too. So I think for, in the metaphor of crew member McDonald's to DDB, I have been the receptionist. So I have been the, the person, arguably, who has the most space to grow. And, um, and I've seen the agency from that side. Now I worked at a very, very small agency, not a global network, so different in that regard. But I do take, you know, from there I was an account coordinator and then I was an account manager and then I was an account supervisor. And I've, I have worked my way up from receptionist. So I, I do think I have 
empathy at least or regard or understanding of what those jobs are like. Um, and I, it's been very helpful. Let's talk about your receptionist job. Kind of what, what, what do you think that kind of taught you? What were some of the memories you have from there? <laughs> I've got a lot of memories. Um, but what I learned there um, uh, was hard work. I mean, what agencies teach you, and it's funny when you talk to you get young co-eds or something like that, I do like the prospect of going into an agency first rather than a marketer because you, I worked my ass off. I was earning $14,000 a year, I remember. It was my starting salary. And I probably worked uh, 70 hours a week. Wow. I, because you do. Because you're hustling. And, and the agency gives you that opportunity. We, we need help on this account. We need something here. We need, and the more you're willing to give, the more you... So you're kind of the owner of your destiny to me at an agency. Because the agency will give you exposure to just about anything that you want in that regard. And so I, I took full advantage of that. I, I worked my ass off. And that, I think it's really important to say that. Maybe not with the ass. But I think it's really <laughs> okay. important that, you know, as a, as a lesson and a principle when you're talking to young people too, is like, you know, how'd you get, you get, how'd, you, how'd you get where you are? I want to tell people I have worked very, very hard. I still work hard. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, uh, you know, I... I have a work ethic that says you work until the, the job is done. You don't let up. You don't. And that doesn't prevent me from delegating things and empowering people. But I am I will be in it with you the entire way. I'm not a ivory tower sit back person. And I never was. And I think I learned that at the agency it, as early experience was it, you get what you make of it and you hustle and and that will port you to your next thing. Have you ever considered a second act? Going to go off and be a novelist? Uh, my second act, I mean, I, well, I do. Uh, I'm very clear my second act will be in nonprofit. I was a candy striper all four years in high school. An early love of volunteering. I've always volunteered. Just Did that come from your mom sort of encouraging, you know, yeah. especially at that age where you don't really know what you're going to do with that time? Well, and it's funny. She, again, just reflecting, my, my middle daughter now wants to be a doctor. And so I've actually started to look into it because candy striping was such a way of getting familiar and comfortable inside a hospital. I mean, I, I was in post-operating rooms. I did patient call. I mean, you get an exposure to a hospital in a way that if you want to have a medical career, it's great. We were talking about it. My mom reminded me. And then these things, she goes, well, you remember you were a candy stripe of the year all four years. Well, these are things you forget. I was like, I was? She's like, yeah. Just telling my daughter, she's like, just mom was candy stripe of the year. <laughs> so I mean, these are like these early little things. I mean, I think part of it was just leadership. So I think that allowed me. So I would, I also was the president of the candy stripers in my senior year. And I did, you know, French club and I was friends in French club and, you know, and then in, into college in my sorority and I was in leadership roles in my sorority. So I, I think it was always part of figuring out a way to invest in the community and realize that it's not about your own success. It's about something far greater than that, number one. And then number two, the, the leadership that can come as you're navigating creating a greatness or an impact beyond your own impact. When did you first sort of, I'm sort of imagining you, you know, as a candy striper. Um, and when did you first realize like this is, you know, day one, you show up and you're doing your training and all that. And then at what point do you felt like you realized, wow, this is, this is really important. Like what I'm doing is not just a thing I'm showing up well, to. You see how you leave others. Like when I would spend time in patients' rooms and make their day just a little bit brighter or better just by spending time with them or refilling their water jugs or greeting their other 
you know, their guests and making them comfortable. You, you start to see, I think I can, I reflect on that at 14, 15 years old, I could feel that I had impacted someone in some way just because I was there. And that felt good. And I like that feeling. It's like, okay, this is what this is about is I'm getting a feeling, but I'm getting that feeling because I made someone else feel good. And I think you can put the math together even as a teenager on, hmm, yeah, that's interesting. That's, do you ever th- do you remember replicate. any of those people that you oh, I remember all of them. I I um Tell it, me about it, one of them. Well, there was one guy, oh, this was awful. Um he was in a motorcycle accident and he was <laughs> he was I'm la- I'm laughing only because the rest of the story, but he was paralyzed from the chest down. So he still had movement of his arms, but everything else was paralyzed and he, we had to rotate him. You have to because the blood, you know, you have to move the body of the person because they're not physically moving to make sure the blood moves. And so we would have to go in there and move him. And I, I won't say his name just because I'm sure there's a HIPAA rule that I shouldn't say his name. But um, I went in there and he would, because he had his, he would pull anything within his physical reach, he would pull down just to get us to come in because then you'd hear this crash, you know, and you're like, so-and-so, what? are you doing? He's like, I knew you'd show up, you know? And he was just, he had the biggest smile. I mean, he obviously had such a long path ahead of him, but he had this wonderful, you know, nature. And he was just a complete disaster with anything and everything in his range. He would throw things, he'd topple things, he'd undo his sheets. He'd, I mean, he was just, but I remember him to this day. And he was there a long time, unfortunately. But, but no, once I'm not doing this, I will go completely out of this and into... Some sort of nonprofit. Are you a planner? Do you plan for five years, 10 years, 15 years? I can hear Jeff Clark laughing. No, (laughs) I am not a planner at all. That was Wendy Clark, CEO at DDB North America. And it's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And while you're there, please rate us and leave us a five-star review. I'm Shreen Patek. See you next week.